Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This time as well, I'm going to dismiss our children downstairs. We trust that God will continue to shape them as they learn the gospel, this gospel that we sing and celebrate. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Swain. Brandon's here. Every story has at least five main elements. You say, well, how do you know, Mike? Well, I googled that. Every story has five main elements. One, context. Two, conflict. You can see I got my alliteration game on today. One, context. Two, conflict. Three, climax. Four, closure. And five, conclusion. As we consider the story that we've been in for quite some time, the the story of the passion of Jesus, Matthew has provided us with great context. In some ways, the 27 chapters of his gospel, of the life, the ministry, the teaching, the miracles of Christ, all provide context. Even the scriptures provide a larger context of what is taking place. And along the way, we've seen an increasing conflict that is taking place, right? Specifically, a conflict that Jesus has with the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. And this now comes to its uh, finality as Jesus is uh, condemned and then Jesus is crucified and he died. Uh, And then there is, as we saw last week, a climax in the story, right? These extraordinary signs that take place, like, you know, the, the temple's curtain, Is torn in two from top to bottom. And this earthquake occurs. And then, of course, the opening of the tombs. Last week was a climax in the narrative of all these signs and extraordinary events that took place as Jesus died. And now that climax of his suffering and death has come to an end. Right? Now, Jesus is just dead. His body is there. He's hanging on the tree. As the day comes to an end, there's no more extraordinary signs. You just have a body, lifeless, on a cross. There's a quiet sorrow that we enter into now as the climax comes to an end. So in the quiet sorrow that we find ourselves in this story, uh, we wonder, where's the closure? Where's the closure? Where's the conclusion to the story? I'm going to invite Katie Woodall. She's going to come forward, and she's going to read for us our scripture passage this morning.
The text this morning comes from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew, beginning with the 27th chapter, the 57th verse. This is the word of the Lord. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we do come before you. We ask that your spirit would be at work, revealing the truth, showing us the gospel, strengthening us in our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I asked you to name the 12 disciples right now without looking, could you name them all? Some of you got like some old Sunday school song, maybe a little rap, like, okay, I'll stop there. Your first thought might be Simon, who's called Peter, Peter. y'all know, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Simon the Zealot, look at you Christians, (laughs) right, James the son of Ah, and there's another one, Alphaeus. Got him. Last one, Judas, who's called Judas Iscariot. There's one disciple that you may not say, that Matthew introduces us to today in the narrative. One that we weren't aware of, but nonetheless, a disciple. Not one of the twelve. This man's name is Joseph. Matthew introduces us to another disciple today. He's not one of the twelve, but nonetheless he is a disciple. His name is Joseph, and he introduces us to him right in the beginning of this passage. When it's evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Here he is, a disciple of Jesus named Joseph. He introduces us to him by giving us some information about him. He tells us he's a rich man, which makes a lot of sense, because how in the world would he have gotten access to Pilate without having some sort of clout, some sort of resources, some sort of stature? He's a rich man. He says that he's from Arimathea. Scholars don't really have any clue where Arimathea is. 
However, Eusebius, the historian, tells us that Arimathea was probably a village about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He's not from there, but he is nearby, about 25 miles northwest. Matthew also tells us that he's a disciple of Jesus, which I've already highlighted for you. But it's interesting to note, if you look at Joseph of Arimathea, and by the way, he's mentioned in all four gospel accounts. All four gospel accounts uh, he is mentioned. John tells us that he was a disciple in secret for fear of the Jews. So that's an important thing to know. Why do we all of a sudden meet Joseph of Arimathea as a disciple? Well, he was a disciple in secret because he was scared of the ramifications and risks of associating himself with Jesus. Luke tells us as well that he was a member of the council, which is most likely a member of the Sanhedrin, right? that ruling body uh, that, that uh, had authority in Jewish life. So he not only is rich, he's not only from Arimathea, He's not only a disciple of Jesus, he's also a member of the council. So you summarize all this, what do we learn? Joseph is rich, Joseph is respected, Joseph is influential. He's not just an average member of society. He's a big man on campus. And yet, up to this point, he's been scared. He's nervous. If people were to know what his true opinion was of Jesus, if people were to find out that he had a relationship with Jesus, what would that mean? What would happen? And yet, here we are in the most, what would seem to be at least, the most defeated moment in Jesus' life. His death. Joseph's relationship and association with Jesus is no longer a secret. Joseph, in this moment, interestingly enough, emboldens. In this moment, he has courage. Risk. He comes to Pilate and he leverages his influence in such a way to associate with Jesus and to care for his body. He's associating himself in a risky moment with this crucified criminal. He sees Jesus there and he wants Jesus' body. He wants to take care of Jesus. He wants to take him down from the cross and he wants to give him an honorable burial. And so that's what he does. He asks Pilate. And Pilate orders the body to be given to Joseph of Arimathea. So having permission, he does. He takes it. And John tells us that he has a partner. Remember, the time is running short. Jesus died at about 3 p.m., and once that sun goes down, the Sabbath begins. And so time is of the essence. And so he takes the body, and we're told that Nicodemus, our old friend from John chapter 3, 
who also came to Jesus by night, that he prepared Jesus' body with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. He's embalming the body. And we're told that Joseph had a rock-cut tomb at his disposal. Again, that highlights how expensive and how, ri- how rich he was and how expensive that would have been. Because to have your own rock-cut tomb in this time would have been uh, very expensive. It would have been a major cost to you. And so what we see Joseph of Arimathea do is not only associate himself with Jesus, but he does so at great personal cost. He had this tomb of great value. Maybe it was reserved for him. Maybe it was reserved for one of his family members. We don't know. All we know is that something of great value was at his disposal. He owned it. It was his. And we're told that he gave it to Jesus. It's in this moment that we can easily reflect on Joseph of Arimathea, the one who is there, the one who in this moment, when Jesus seems to be most defeated, is now associating himself with Jesus and now portraying what devotion looks like. Because as he's there, we're immediately thinking implicitly who's not there. Where are the disciples of Jesus? In their fear, in Christ's defeat, they run. The disciples, the twelve, are not there. But here he is. And here, Joseph of Arimathea is giving us a picture of genuine discipleship. In contrast to Jesus' twelve disciples. He was afraid, but not any longer. He does not cower in the face of the cross. He does not run or hide. But rather, he shows his devotion to Jesus. He risks his position and his influence, and he does so at great personal cost to himself. That is what true disciples do. Gavin Ortland says, we might not initially realize how heroic this act was. But for several reasons, it was an amazing demonstration of courage and sacrifice that may inspire us to keep obeying God during the dark and lonely nights of our own lives. Joseph of Arimathea becomes for us an encouraging example of what true discipleship is. We're encouraged to see in his life that Jesus, in this moment, for whatever reason, becomes for him the most precious and valuable thing that he has and knows. Person he knows. And he's so precious and so valuable, even in his most defeated moment, he is willing to risk all that this world had given to him just to express his devotion. He was willing to sacrifice his influence, his stature, his money, his success, all of it, just to show his devotion to Christ and to be associated with him. Friends, 
Is that true of you? Is that true of you? Would you be willing, are you willing, to risk all this world offers you? All the success, all the money, all the influence, the stature, the popularity, the sense of accomplishment. Would you be willing to sacrifice everything just to be associated with Jesus in His death and that cross? Do you conclude that the most precious thing is that He is yours and you are His? That nothing else matters to you in the end? That nothing else is as precious and meaningful than Jesus? You're willing to lose everything just to have him. That's what Joseph of Arimathea gives us. That's what, as Calvin, I think, importantly, uh, appropriately points out, that's what the Spirit of God does in Joseph of Arimathea in this unlikely moment. He emboldens him and gives him courage to risk everything to be associated with Christ and his cross. Is that you? That's what true discipleship is. I don't know what your understanding of discipleship is. Joseph of Arimathea gives us that picture. But not only Joseph, here we are again. We see the women. Amen? Just like last week. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. The disciples are not. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The women continue to show us what a faithful disciple is and does. They are there. They are present. Surely they are sorrowful in this moment. But they are devoted to Jesus. Amen? They're weeping. They're watching. And they're witnessing. As we continue to see that for Matthew and the other gospel writers, these women, present and faithful, become the primary witnesses to the reality of all these events, including the resurrection that is coming. Amen? They give us a picture. And they weep, and they watch, and they witness. And here it is, with, with Jesus' burial, the sun has set on his suffering. That's where we are in the story. With Jesus' burial, the sun has set on his suffering. Why does that even matter? Well, Jesus' burial stresses the finality of his humiliation, the finality of his suffering. The finality of his death. Calvin says, God determined that Christ should be buried. That it might be more fully attested that he suffered 
real death on our account. Do you know that? This is no fable. This is real, historic. His burial underscores the finality of this reality. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this, Why was he buried? Question 41. The answer, to show thereby that he was really dead. What's the significance? Friends, he's dead. That's what Jesus' burial does. But not only that, Jesus' burial highlights the fulfillment of God's promises related to the suffering servant. Remember, we're in Matthew. Matthew's always pointing us back to Old Testament fulfillment. He is pointing us back to the promises of God in the prophets that shape the expectations of the people of God. In Isaiah 59.3, this passage about the suffering servant, what does he say? He says in Isaiah 53.9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus is faithful. I'm sorry, God is faithful. Right? That's what reflection upon the finality of his death and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Upon further reflection, we come face to face with the reality that God has been faithful to every one of his promises in Christ Jesus. Amen? That everything he promised is coming to Fruition. It is being fulfilled down to every single word and phrase from Isaiah 53, uh, and specifically in verse 9. We don't simply have an example of discipleship and devotion, which is important to highlight. We have another example of the perfection and the faithfulness of our God. So what does this mean? It provides for us assurance that everything God says He's going to do, He's going to do. Amen? There is not one promise that he's made that will not come to fulfillment. We see this even in the death and burial of his son. That God has been faithful to provide for our salvation to the suffering servant. And that's his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, God is faithful. No question about it. Amen? That's what Matthew is underscoring for us today. The sun has set on the suffering of Jesus. God is faithful. His death is final. But even as the sun is set on the suffering of Jesus, the religious leaders have some remaining concerns. Right? Not only has Joseph of Arimathea been nervous, at least up to this point, we see the religious leaders are still nervous. Here it is Saturday now, the next day. It's the Sabbath. Times where the religious leaders should be gathering with the people of God. And here they're gathering with the Roman officials. They're nervous. So they go to Pilate, and they seek his permission to address these concerns. It says the next day, that is the day of preparation, 
The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure unto the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Oh man, they are nervous. And you know, in their, in their dignity and honor, they want to make sure that none of this silliness spreads amongst the people. They want to protect uh, the faith, if you will, their faith. Uh, and so they go to Pilate and they get permission. They ask, like, can we seal this thing up? Because, you know, we heard through the grapevine that, that, that Jesus said on the third day he would rise, and today's day two. You know, let's guarantee, let's make sure that no one gets in that tomb and no one gets out of that tomb. Let's make sure that we protect the people from any deceit. It's amazing to think that these religious leaders have called Jesus the deceiver. The one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life is now called the deceiver. Even as we hear this concern, I don't know about you, but the words of these words become hopeful. They they conjure up for me hope. They remind me of what Christ said in this quiet sorrow of Saturday. We're reminded, the readers reminded of what Jesus said. And even as we're faced with his death, that the Son has set on his suffering. There's this memory of what Jesus said about his resurrection. So Pilate said to them, you, you have guarded the soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Pilate gives them permission. We're not sure if he's giving them the soldiers or not, or he's saying, hey, you figure it out. Whatever the case may be, Pilate has given them permission to seal the tomb. You see, when when Joseph put Jesus' body in the tomb and then closed it, he rolled a stone over it. But that wasn't sufficient for these guys. They wanted a seal. You know, like, if it ever is opened, we know. Kind of like an envelope, right? The the beauty of that seal of the envelope. We know if it's been opened. They're saying, hey, we're going to seal it now. So that if that stone ever is rolled away... We're going to know that somebody tampered with this thing. Somebody got in here. So they set a seal over it. And if that's not enough, they put guards there, right? They took their toughest guys with their biggest weapons and they put them there. You stand here. Don't let anyone in. Don't let anyone out. At least for a couple days while this all blows over. And so that's what happens. They went. They secured the tomb, they sealed it, they set a guard over it, no one's getting in, no one's getting out. Unless we think that all of a sudden those scared disciples got brave and strong, maybe they did a little crossfit over the weekend, and they showed up with their fishing poles to start a fight with the most strong and powerful men in the world. Unless we think that's what happened, this whole scenario ironically sets up Beautifully, right? The irony of what's taking place. 
there can be only one explanation about what's about to take place on Resurrection Sunday. This whole thing, we have a sealed and guarded tomb. Jesus' lifeless body in this moment was on complete lockdown. He's died. He's buried. The tomb is sealed. And with Jesus' burial, the sun has set on his suffering as we anticipate the sun to rise on his victory. Amen? We may think to ourselves, so what? This is just part of the narrative transition into closure. Just part of the story. This is just the falling action of a good writer. Who cares? But if we grab a hold of our new resource, shameless plug, we believe, some of you, I think most of you have received this at our last members meeting, a lot of work and effort went into this. Our staff put a lot of time and effort into coming up with a document, uh, really a resource, that uh, is, can be at our disposal that just lays out what we believe. If you were to thumb through this, which because you have one, right? Because it's in your Bible, right? You have it. Okay, I'm done. If you still need a we believe, there's some in the back. Please grab a hold of it, make use of it. But it's interesting, as I was thinking about the burial of Jesus, I came to the realization, maybe for the first time ever, at least in terms of focus and emphasis, because so often we talk about his death and resurrection, his death and resurrection. The confessions and statements of faith, they don't skip his burial, right? You go to the Apostles' Creed, which is right at the beginning. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I think died's probably good enough. We get it. No, not enough. The emphasis there, the focus. What about the Nicene Creed? For our sake, and speaking of Jesus, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. You see, you come to the realization that the burial of Jesus is primary in Christian doctrine. It's primary. Primary in Christian doctrine. The abstract of principles. Turn the page. It's all here, y'all. In paragraph 7. On the mediator, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is the divinely appointed mediator between God and man. Having taken upon himself human nature, yet without sin, he perfectly fulfilled the law, suffered and died upon the cross for the salvation of sinners. He was buried. It's buried. Question 30 of the Baptist Catechism. Bam! Right in our We Believe document. In what did Christ's humiliation consist? Question, answer. Christ's humiliation consisted in His being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, in being buried. 
the burial of Jesus is primary in Christian doctrine. Not only that, the burial of Jesus is central to the gospel we preach. Do you know that? You say, where are you getting that one? Paul. That's the trump card. Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Amen? That He was buried. Amen? He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. Friend, if you do not know this, if you don't know the Gospel, hear it. This is the Gospel. Jesus came. He lived he died in accordance with the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised in accordance with the Scriptures, and He appeared to the Twelve. That's the Gospel. That's of first importance. And His burial is central to it. Do you know that this is what Christ has done? Do you understand that this is central to the good news that we preach? He was buried. He entered into the human condition. He was humiliated in death and all the way to the grave in his burial. There was not one part of human humiliation and existence that he did not endure for you. All of it. He was buried. He loved you to the end. Remember when John said that? He loved you to the end, all the way to the grave, all the way to his burial. Please hear that about Jesus, about what he has done for you. It's our gospel. It's good news. And of course, as those who embrace it, who hear what Christ has done in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his appearances, as we hear that, those who embrace it, we come to the realization especially as we baptized people two weeks ago, that the burial of Jesus is integral to our union with him. Don't miss that. Romans 6 tells us, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Friends, the burial of Jesus is personal for us in reference to our salvation. In his burial, we see our own. In his death, we see our own. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in, in me. Amen? The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's union with Jesus in his death. We're reminded, those of us who've placed our faith, hope, and trust in him and been baptized, we were baptized into his death. We were 
buried, therefore, with him. As we contemplate his burial, we see our own. And what is the significance of this? That means the finality of his death is the finality of the death of your old life as you embrace him by faith. Your old life is gone. Amen? New has come. We see that in his cross and in his burial. We've been united to him in his burial. We went to the grave with him. Then there's a finality to an old life that Jesus paid for and dealt with. Amen? If you're wrestling with assurance or wrestling with sins and struggles, and you're like, am I even saved? Is that old life even gone? Did, I, did, did God really give me a new identity in Christ? Here's the facts, friend. If you place your faith, hope, and trust in Him, your old life is crucified, your old life is buried, and you are now raised to new life with Him. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Amen? That's the truth of the Word of God. It's personal. It's personal. His burial. And last... The burial of Jesus is the necessary prerequisite to his victory in the resurrection. To conquer the grave, Jesus had to go to the grave. Amen? And that's what he does. Again, to the end, to the utmost, he goes to the grave and we understand that he conquers it on our behalf. I think about just how we are facing death every single day. My body is wasting away. I'm getting old. Some of you older folks are like, you ain't old. Well, I'm still feeling old. You may not think I'm old, but I'm still... We are facing the grave. And what hope do we have as we face the reality of the grave? The end of this temporal earthly life. What hope do we have? Jesus conquered it. He went there. He conquered it. That is not the end for us, amen? As we think about people in our life that we love, that we've lost, that are no longer with us, we can know and embrace the fact that they trusted in Christ Jesus and the grave is not the end of the story for them, that they have great hope because Jesus went there and conquered the grave. What comfort we have as we think about the fact that Jesus was buried and he conquered the grave. He went there so that we would not ultimately end up there in eternity. Amen? We have the hope of eternal life. Why? Because he was buried. He went to the grave. He conquered the grave. Amen? Amen. Matthew's writing this story. And in some ways, he is bringing us closure, isn't he? The finality of Christ's suffering. The sun has set on Christ's suffering. And yet even as we await a conclusion to the story, we understand that we're not quite there yet. And even though it seems maybe that we've passed the climax, we understand that another wonderful, uh, unimaginable climax is still yet to come that we await for.
His resurrection. The story's not over, amen? The story's not over. With Jesus' burial, the sun is set on His suffering as we anticipate the sun to rise on His victory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is not one part of your saving grace that Christ has not secured and provided. Jesus paid it all. And yet, we praise you that Jesus did it all. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here today that needs strength, that you would remind them of the fullness of your love, that you would strengthen them in their faith. Pray that you would show them the perfection of your work and how by faith and by the Spirit, through the Word, you have applied it to them. Remind them and reassure them. I pray if there's anybody here today that does not know you, has not placed their faith, hope, and trust in you, that your Spirit's at work in them now, drawing them. They see the, the wonderful beauty of the Gospel, that Christ is their Savior. He is their Lord. He is their King. That He suffered and died in their place. That all their sin and guilt can be taken care of through Christ in His finished work. Lord, draw them to faith, we pray. And Lord, even as we sit together as a church in the the quiet sorrow of this story, I pray that you would give us hope. Remind us of the victory that Christ has secured in His resurrection. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.